the show that goes there. This is the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome to it. Oh my God, it is December. We've had a big news week. And of course, we've got to kick it all off with catching up with what happened over the weekend. If you've missed it, we've had a ex-president pass away, a current president kind of fade into the background, a G20 summit to remember, and so much more. Uh, Before we get into all of that, hey, some brief introductions are in line. Welcome to my show. I am your host, a critical thinker, a problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, and my name is Shaggy Jenkins. If you want to find me, go to my website. It's shaggyjenkins.com, or you can follow us on Spotify or Stitcher, or hey, why not? Just look for us on social media, wherever that is served, uh, just at Shaggy Live. It'll be Real easy to find me with that. Uh, We begin today with the story of a former president and a weird legacy kind of debate. Because, okay, if you are familiar with the month of December, you know that December 1st is World AIDS Day. And this year was kind of auspicious in the fact that it was also the big, big, big announcement in the United States that the 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, age 95, had passed away. Now, you're probably thinking, but George Bush didn't have age, Shaggy. Why are these two stories connected? (laughs) Funny you should ask. You see, there's this weird problem. As people uh, have taken online to talk about the former president, and even I have a a cutesy story, I met George H.W. Bush. In Gastonia, North Carolina, of all places. But I'm not going to, you know, give you the details of the story of how it it was an elaborate scam of getting out of school and then showing up where I knew the president would be. I'm just not going to get into it. Instead, I'm going to kind of get into the heated online debate about George H.W. Bush's legacy when it comes to AIDS. A lot of people took to Twitter and Facebook and said, look, I understand that this guy died and everybody is kind of feeling really bad for, you know, possibly the the last of the gentle and actual wartime serving presidents that America has had. Uh, You shouldn't really lament this guy too much because he and his wife laughed at the nation as the AIDS crisis escalated. And to that I would say, um, it's complicated. Just like a good Facebook status, right? Look, I understand that a lot of people were kind of upset, and I mean really, really upset, over the fact that George... H.W. Bush chose to die on World AIDS Day. There's nothing that you can do about that. That's that's literally one of the choices in life you don't get to make. And nobody gets... Okay, well, some people get to make for you if you've done bad things or just run afoul of a bad situation. But death is one of those things that you can't really say, Oh... I think I'll plan it for a more, less auspicious day. But when it comes to talking about George H.W. Bush's legacy with AIDS, 
I think a lot of the backlash online wasn't really hitting its intended target. Okay, let me explain. George H.W. Bush, who died over this weekend, was the vice president to number 40, the big gip, Ronald Reagan. And he found himself in that position by not being popular enough to actually be the presidential candidate in 1980. Instead, he ended up with the number two spot, and you know what happens when it comes to parties. Usually the number two is invited to be the vice presidential candidate. It's just a way of solidifying the appeal of the top candidate. So, George H.W. Bush was vice president during Ronald Reagan's years. And here's where uh, that in, it's complicated comes up when it comes to his relationship with AIDS. You see, although he wasn't a very vocal man, as a matter of fact, he, he was actually known for <laughs> kind of telling everybody, hey, look, man, my job here as vice president, as a, if a foreign dignitary you know, passes away, hey, they fly, uh, they die, we fly. I, I'll attend all the foreign dignitaries' funerals. And <clears throat> job number one is never upstage or speak against the president because I'm his vice and I'm supposed to be his wingman. Now, that does mean that there was a certain level of complicity when it come to what happened with the AIDS epidemic in America. You see, it really got started, God, back in the early 80s when this mysterious autoimmune disease started claiming a lot of lives and doctors were at a loss to explain what it was. And the fact that it eh, kind of was associated with certain lifestyles by the Christian right here in the country, it did get ascribed a certain stigma Therefore, nobody in <clears throat> normal, dignified, conservative society would bring it to light. And that includes one Ronald Wilson Reagan. You see, as Reagan was president, the AIDS epidemic really started to take off. And it wasn't until a young man by the name of Ryan White contracted the disease through a blood transfusion, mind you, that Reagan actually finally came forward and admitted that this autoimmune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, might be a real thing and might be in epidemic levels. By the time that he was making his public statements on it, the AIDS epidemic had already started to claim thousands and thousands of lives, and nothing was going to be done about it. Now, here's the thing. When people started talking about the death of George H.W. Bush, they said that he and his wife laughed as the AIDS epidemic killed so many millions of people in America, and he ignored it. Not true. Reagan ignored it. But behind the scenes, George H.W. Bush, just like his wife, was kind of curious about what was happening. And later, after he became the first guy in 150 years 
to go from vice president directly into presidency, yeah, he broke a kind of record there. George H.W. Bush's attitudes towards the AIDS epidemic and especially its public portrayal changed greatly. Now, if you're a fan of online search engines, you might want to look up Barbara Bush and AIDS Baby. I, I know it's a weird thing to Google, but that's how the internet works. I cannot define the algorithm. I can just make it. Well, easy for you to find the information I'm telling you. You see, kids were starting to be born in massive numbers with the AIDS virus. Now, this was because we didn't have a lot of education uh, going on during Ronald Reagan's time. There wasn't a lot of medical research. We kind of associated it with a gay lifestyle and said, well, no normal Christian person will get the, the, the disease. Boy, were we wrong on that. Um we assumed that it wasn't even a heterosexual disease for a while. Okay, can I just be honest? 80s were weird, man. But getting back into this, when it came to George H.W. Bush's reaction towards AIDS, well, he was, in his own words, a little bit more kinder and gentler. And there is a tale of, of when Barbara Bush was, was visiting a center where a bunch of orphan babies were. One of them, who had, uh, you know, tested positive for human immuno uh, deficiency virus. I, I don't know if I said that right. HIV. It's the uh, virus that leads to full-blown AIDS. Well, when this baby cried, she just picked it up and started cooing it and petting it and stuff. And everybody looked at her like, oh my god, you picked up plague, baby. And she just kind of glared at everybody around her and was like, these are people. This is a child. It needed comforting. The hell do you want from me? And that seemed to be George H.W. Bush's difference when it came to the legacy of the 1980s uh, great who does AIDS even exist thing that happened. It happened under Reagan. And a lot of people are ascribing some sort of guilt to George H.W. Bush. And yes... I'm even going to admit it. Hey, you weren't vocal enough. Maybe you should have possibly said something, but George H.W. Bush was not known for being a guy that would kind of, you know, celebrate at all. The Berlin Wall fell. What did he say? Hey, I'm elated. No, like, seriously, that's how he said it. I'm elated. Doesn't that just make you feel the whole totalitary of joy he must have been feeling in that moment? Yeah. Not really a uh, <clears throat> emotionally speaking guy. But here's the thing. Because if we want to talk about Bushes and we want to talk about World AIDS Day, let's talk a little bit about, well, the difference of a father and a son. Because, let's not forget, not only was George H.W. Bush the first president in 150 years to come to that job by way of vice presidency, he was the also, oh God, way back since our country's founding, was the first 
president to enjoy one of his children becoming president as well. Yeah, and that's where this story gets very interesting. Because you see, a lot of people, when they talk about George H.W. Bush and his presidency, they'll remember things like uh, the first desert storm, you know, the, the, the first time that he went after Saddam Hussein, who had tried to illegally annex the oil fields and the entire damn country of Kuwait. Um, they'll also kind of famously remember as he's one of the guys that started funding through CIA and other um, you know, uh, national security agencies, little groups like the Mojahideen, who would eventually go on to become Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda under uh, Bill Clinton's watch. So, once again, this is not a guy that has a very easy legacy to dissect. But when you think about his relationship to the AIDS epidemic in the United States, a lot of people were like, yes! Now that he's dead, we can finally talk about all the terrible things that he did. But in fact, oh God, oh God, you're going to hate me. He might be, as far as a president and a father, one of the most American of American tales that we can ever, ever give. Okay, now, if you're a longtime fan of this show and, and me, you know, Shaggy Jenkins, host, found at a website, shaggyjenkins.com, online at, at Shaggy Live, wherever fine social media is served. That guy, if you know anything about me, you know that I believe in my heart of hearts, and I try to try to relay it through all the correspondence and everything, that America is a country of redemption. Bad things happen here, and most of the time... Sometimes it takes a hell of a lot longer, I'm looking at you, civil rights and gender equality, uh, to get the lesson. But in America, we are a country that does kind of redeem ourselves from time to time and take terrible things in our past and, and turn them into wonderful progress for our future. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. That's probably a very simplistic way of saying, God, we've made a lot of mistakes and the body count is too large to even fathom. But bear with me. I have to keep this argument simplistic for the sheer concept of how American a president, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush ended up being. I know what you're thinking. Whoa, Shaggy, you're about to talk about two Republicans. That's weird. And two, you're about to talk about them fondly and compare them to the story of America. Trust me, you will enjoy this. And if not, well, send an email, shaggyjenkins at gmail.com, and let me know I did not enjoy that. Just put that as the subject line, and I'll know exactly what you're talking about. Whereas... George H. W. Bush was in the White House during the time of a president that largely ignored a health crisis until it became an epidemic and started killing people by the thousands. Whereas George H. W. Bush was that president, 
and in his own one-term administration, did try to roll back some of the Reagan coldness towards the, the, the AIDS epidemic and people that suffered with it. It wasn't until somebody that watched his presidency, as an adult, mind you, not as a child, as an adult, watched his father go through the presidency on this one issue and and basically, by and large, agree with what he was doing. Yeah, it turns out that George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush kind of shared the same befuddlement of what AIDS actually was. But then, of course, you know, it's the early 2000s. Rock stars and supermodels and stand-up comedians are ruling the world, and, and George W. Bush found an unlikely compatriot in the lead singer of U2, Bono. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with anything? Trust me. It's this, this the most American tale you will ever have. Because I, being a son of an American dad, have looked at my own father's life and said that there's, well, there's a couple of things that you did right, old man. Then there's a lot of things that I would do differently. And, and, and given the chance, and given the knowledge, hell, I might actually do something good with my life. And one of the craziest things, when we talk about the legacies of presidents, George H.W. Bush has the legacy for a kinder, kinder, gentler nation, a thousand points of light, um, going to war in Kuwait, uh, also, being the president, believe it or not, that signed the most sweeping American act for the benefit of people with disabilities. George H.W. Bush is in, known in a lot of circles as the disabilities president. But he wasn't known by a moniker that his son could actually rightfully wear. You see, George W. Bush saw his father's presidency. And I know what you're thinking. Really, he saw that while he was busy drinking? Uh, no, no. Feed into stereotypes, people. Feed into stereotypes. But as a son, I know what it's like to look at my dad and go, hey, there's some things that you got right, and there's some things that I would do different. And, God forbid, there's a lot of things that I agree on you with, but given time and education and knowledge... I might think differently. And if we have to ascribe a negative connotation on George H.W. Bush on, on World AIDS Day, and just happened December 1st, and say that he was the president that, that ignored the AIDS epidemic, even though he wasn't, it was Ronald Reagan, we just kind of mishmash history all together in a big squash not remembering that things take time to happen. And in the latter part of Reagan's administration, the nation did start to become aware of the AIDS epidemic, more so under George H.W. Bush's and Bill Clinton's presidency. 
But back to the point of this. The ultimate tale that you can tell in America is when the next generation sees something from the previous generation and corrects it. And not only corrects it, but corrects it in a world-changing, paradigm-shifting kind of way. Because in this unlikely friendship that I was telling you between George W. Bush and rock star Bono of the group U2, remember the Zootopia tour? Wow. Okay, but okay. Through this friendship, they actually kind of earned a legacy for George W. Bush that a lot of people don't mention. And it's important, now that his father has died, that we do. Whereas his father, who had been the president behind the scenes of a mostly ignorant administration of the AIDS epidemic and then only started to come into knowledge himself before he became president and then passed out of public office and spotlight from one term, his son, George W. Bush, could possibly go down in history as being the AIDS president. Unlike his dad, George W. Bush, in this relationship that he had with Bono, got himself a little educated on what was happening with HIV and AIDS worldwide. And as such, set forth the most sweeping act the world has seen when it comes to HIV and AIDS. It's called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Release. PEPFAR. (sighs) Sounds like a little place that you would take your pep to get repaired. Maybe I'm thinking of pep boys. But look, pep far, okay? The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief gave $15 billion to the global initiative against HIV and AIDS. Now, when you want to talk about a legacy... Guys that were human rights purists, okay, Uh, just big, big, oh my God, everything the United States does is wrong. Uh, Nicholas Kristof is one of them. Basically said PEPFAR is the best single thing Bush has ever done in his life. (laughs) Now, that's a big, big compliment, but it's also kind of the story of how America, from time to time, from generation to generation, ends up redeeming itself. You see, because George H.W. Bush might have been, truthfully, largely ignorant over the spread and rise of the AIDS epidemic, especially when he was so busy flying away to so many other people's funerals and, you know, ribbon-cutting ceremonies, mall openings, and whatever the hell else vice presidents did during the 1980s. George H.W. Bush, 
who kind of came up in a cloud of mystery when it came to AIDS, didn't really know what it was, started to learn about it when he was in his his first and only term as president, didn't get a really good education into its impacts. But because America is the type of place where our lessons are persistent, even if the people that are responsible for us knowing those lessons have passed on, the great thing about America, and this is the the real legacy of George H.W. Bush is that once the old guard goes away, there's always a chance for the new guard, even direct linear descendants, there's a chance for them. And the whole mess of crap they may do wrong to do the one shining example of right. And that is redemption. And if anything, the cornerstone of America has always been that no matter how high you climb, there's a good chance you could fall pretty far. But no matter how far you fall, and even if you come with a family that has a reputation like Prescott Bush. Remember him as a senator? You should look him up because, holy cow, the Bush political dynasty, Prescott Bush is like the daytime soap opera to what the rest of them were. He is the actual, oh my God, I can't believe this guy was doing. Okay, but just look him up is all I'm saying. But him, a long time ago, never being a president, had a certain set of ideals that would have considered, well, outlandish and backwards and draconian to his own son, George Herbert Walker Bush. And George Herbert Walker Bush's attitudes towards the AIDS epidemic were nowhere close to George W. Bush, who will probably go down in history as the best president for AIDS this country ever had. Now, if that's not a legacy to consider and kind of a way of dissecting this whole should we really celebrate George H.W. Bush's death or mourn him, I hope that helps. Stay close. When we come back, we've got a lot more to cover. This is Shaggy Jinkin Show. This is Scientific American's 60-Second Science. I'm Christopher Intagliata. Blue whales are the largest animals ever to exist on Earth. But they're still tough to track because they live underwater where we can't easily see them, and often in remote areas like the Southern Ocean. But the whales' songs can travel hundreds of kilometers underwater, so scientists often listen for them instead. By the way, that's sped up ten times so you can hear it. Over the years, these eavesdropping biologists have noticed a mysterious trend that certain blue whale calls are gradually lowering in pitch over time. For example, here's a call from 2002, followed by one from 2017. 
it has been observed for many blue whale population worldwide. So this phenomenon has to have a worldwide explanation. Emmanuelle Lois is a bioacoustician at the University of New South Wales in Australia. She did the work at the University of Brest in France. Her team confirmed the phenomenon holds true for populations of blue whales in the southern Indian Ocean, too. And they suggest one reason, maybe, that whale numbers have rebounded from the days of Captain Ahab. More whales means individuals don't have to shout as loud to be heard by other whales. And because of an anatomical peculiarity in the way whales sing, the softer they sing, the lower the pitch. The scientists have another theory, too, which may be acting in concert with the first, which is that whales are singing more softly, and therefore more deeply, because increasingly acidic ocean waters carry their calls further. The full write-up is in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Oceans. Lawa and her team noticed one other short-term trend, that southern blue whales' songs actually get higher in pitch during the austral summer, perhaps in an effort to be heard over cracking icebergs. Like when you put some ice cube in your drink, you can hear it crack. So it's the same for an iceberg. So it will be really loud and you can hear it across an oceanic basin. To solve these mysteries more definitively, the scientists say we'll need to keep listening and monitor the changing chemical and acoustic properties of the oceans to see which of these ideas are borne out and which of them don't hold water. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American's 60 Second Science, I'm Christopher Intagliata. Warning. Too much consumption of the Shaggy Jenkins Show could result in a higher IQ, a better understanding of the world, and not being called a f***ing idiot as much. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back. Hey, if you miss any part of the first part of this show, just look us up at our website, shaggyjenkins.com. And as we are always adding affiliates to the station, if you want to follow me on social media, I promise you it will be a surreal experience where you will probably hear, well, some of this stuff, but a lot of my weird attempts at comedy. Just follow me at uh, Twitter and Facebook at Shaggy Live, or just look for The Shaggy Jenkins Show on Facebook and at our page. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, critical thinker, problem solver, guy with a lot of time on his hands to do reading. My name is Shaggy Jenkins. Let's get back into some of our big stories of the weekend because not only did we have this conspicuous death of a former president that is conspicuous because, one, he's the last United States president to actually serve in war, and two, His presidency is a vast, vast, like, mirror universe to the presidency that we're in now from a Republican administration and Donald Trump. So it's been kind of a weird weekend. It's actually been a weirder weekend at the G20 summit where, okay, let's just go ahead and say the G20 summit is where a bunch of global leaders get together and they make agreements that are supposed to, well, help the world. Well, some of those members had some kind of interesting exchanges, and we'll get to those in in a second. But first, I want to talk about Donald Trump's conspicuous, non-conspicuous showing at the G20. Now, here's some leading up to it facts. Last week, in kind of a surprise, oh my God, I can't believe that happened, Michael Cohen walked into a courtroom. 
Who's Michael Cohen? Well, he's the guy that used to walk around and actually claim his job title was a mafia term as a fixer for Donald Trump. He's the guy that can make all of Donald Trump's legal worries, like Better Call Saul, Saul Goodman, he can make them all just go away in a cloud of legalese. Well, the fixer turned himself in, and then on Friday, reports were coming out basically saying that Donald Trump, as noted as individual one, was involved in some pretty shady stuff with Russia all the way through the election process. And those ties while financial, are also in clear violation of some other stuff and actually represent kind of a a little bit of a, hey, they lied to you about this moment. So Donald Trump was going to the G20 not as a president empowered, as, as, as he was trying to portray himself as tough on immigration, which George H.W. Bush, once again, being the opposite of what Donald Trump was, kinder, gentler immigration policies, didn't really see other people as innate enemies of the state like Donald Trump, actually had a good relationship with the press. But eh, we all digress, right? Well, Donald Trump went in to the G20, and the first thing that happened after the allegations of the strong ties between Trump and the Kremlin, Putin in particular, and the, uh, the whole Russian thing that he's been saying is not a thing, with all of that stuff coming fresh to light, the first thing that Donald Trump did was conspicuously cancel a meeting with Vladimir Putin. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I would too. If I was uh, under this whole kind of cloud of suspicion of colluding with the guy to hijack a foreign country's election, I wouldn't really want to be seen with him in public either. And yeah, that is a good point. However, remember, there's two sides to this whole equation. And on Putin's side, this is the crazy thing. Vladimir Putin derives a lot of his power and influence in Russia by the power and influence he is perceived to hold over other world leaders. In other words, part of Putin's strength is drawn by the perception that he is secretly in control of other politicians, like good Soviet comrade would even though Soviet is over. So Putin really needs Donald Trump to keep meeting with him and to keep showing up with him. So over the weekend, while the United States media was salivating over the fact that, oh my God, the Michael Cohen thing happened and now Donald Trump canceled a meeting with Putin in Russia, insiders were telling the Russian media that, oh, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's Donald Trump is busy, so we have a pull-aside meeting. A pull-aside meeting is basically between all of the official things that those world leaders are doing. They also have opportunities in the hallway and in intermissions from certain 
you know, symposiums that they're at, uh, they have time to kind of pull each other aside and have non-formal tiny talks. Now, although these talks usually don't amount to a lot of anything other than world leaders small-talking each other, sometimes pull-asides are very important in the G20. When it comes to Russia, however, the pull-aside is literally the only show of power Putin has with Trump. Because Russian media is coming forward with the story that, that Russia, despite being, you know, ugh, off the official docu- docket of President Trump, Comrade Trump, uh, that, they, that Putin and Trump had indeed planned a pull-aside meeting. Now, when it came to our official statements, John Bolton, uh, war- warmonger extraordinaire, uh, he basically said no such meeting is going to happen. In other words, trying to once again distance President Trump away from Vladimir Putin. And that's very important right now for where we are in the Mueller investigation. There can be no perceived signs of warmth or friendliness or especially closed doors, clandestine meetings between the United States president and the country suspected of manipulating their election and colluding with the campaign of the current administration to bend the odds ever in their favor. Ah, Hunger Games 2016 is what it was. Now, even though we're still going under the investigation of what happened online, the money trail that Mueller has been following has, has kind of led to some strange places. And one of those strange places is an apartment complex in Moscow, a, a low-end flat, you know, uh, kind of a mid-level, mid-economy size apartments for people that are just urban dwellers and are trying to have a place to lay their head when they go to work. Not something that you would kind of associate with the auspicious brand of Donald Trump. But because Cohen came forward and talked about all the details of that deal, keeping President Trump perceptionally away from Putin at the G20 was a big, big, big deal. But on the Russian side of this story, the big, big deal is is that meeting still needed to happen for Putin to maintain his reputation as the all-powerful leader of Russia. A lot of his power bases is tied up in this perception that Putin secretly controls the world. And knowing that, it was very, very, very important for Putin to be perceived to still be in close contact with the United States president. Now, another character came up at the G20 that, let's just be honest, a lot of people didn't believe would show up. Um, Muhammad Ben Salam, MBS, you know him as the Saudi prince that up until a few weeks ago was the darling of the world, the, the Saudi Arabian progressive prince that was letting women drive. Yeah, well, he was also involved in and, and text 
messages and phone records and recordings released by foreign governments have all shown that MBS was instrumental in coordinating, planning, and having carried out the execution of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So, let's say you're a world leader and you just engineered the murder of a foreign government's journalist. And you did it because they were just critical of some of the things, okay, a lot of the things that you were doing in your country. Keep in mind, this is not a journalist that lives in your country. This is a journalist that is a nationalized citizen in a completely different country. So you can't really act like king of the kingdom at that point, Princey. But that's what he did. Famously even telling our own Garrett Kushner, you know, boy wonder, secretary of everything when he started out in the Trump administration and now secretary of silence in the current form. Uh, the thing about that is that when it comes to MBS and in and, and his talks of Jamal Khashoggi, when he called up Kushner, he basically said, hey, man, what's the big deal? It's just a journalist. We kill them all the time. OK, well, he didn't say we it's just a journalist. We kill them all the time. But he literally said, what's the big deal? Because he doesn't have a problem killing people that disagree with him. He also doesn't have a problem with locking them up in a hotel and extorting millions and millions of dollars from them. Making political prisoners of people that don't agree with him publicly. These are things that he has been seen to have done. So, of course, it was kind of unusual that he showed up. It was also very unusual two moments that happened. Between the young Saudi prince, MBS, and two world leaders. Okay, let's first talk about a world leader that we just got through talking about. When it came to Vladimir Putin, a guy that, on the world stage, has a reputation for clandestine killings of people that are political refugees from his country— and especially in the UK, where since 2010, they've had almost three dozen unexplained deaths of Russian nationals that became nationalized United Kingdom citizens. Oh, and, and then, you know, there was the whole Skripali poisoning that happened not too long ago as well. Russia has a reputation for kind of strong-arming or even killing people that don't agree with it, no matter who's soil their own. So this first little moment shouldn't be a big surprise to you. Muhammad bin Salam, guy currently under a flurry of international pressure and investigations still ongoing for his role in the murder of a Washington Post journalist and Vladimir Putin, when they saw each other, smiled emphatically and gave each other a high five and if you're familiar with bond um if you're familiar with bond villains 
you'll know one thing. Bond villains can't really cackle and celebrate like that openly because you'll kind of see them and go, oh my God, they're the bad guys. But Putin and MBS showed no restraint whatsoever when they greeted each other. It was just like two guys getting together and saying, hey, Vladdy, baby, who you killed lately? I just killed a couple of uh, journalists in the UK. Who did you kill? <laughs> just the Jamal Khashoggi. That's the only one I can admit to. Hee <laughs> hee, or can I? That interaction right there should tell the world everything we ever needed to know about the caliber of people that our president will defend. Because in the aftermath of the Khashoggi uh, murder, Donald Trump said, hey, our ties to Saudi Arabia are too important for them to do one extrajudiciary foreign soil execution stand between us. We, we, we just can't let this unabashed killing of somebody they disagreed with get in the way of all that progress. Well, here's the thing. Do we really want to equate life with how much trade we do with another country? Because in that case, me being over here in the Pacific Ocean, there's a lot of Pacific Rim nations that would like to talk to you, America. A lot of them. And you might not like what they have to say about trade. Oh, and the value of human life and as far as America has portrayed itself to be. But that one little interaction between the mastermind of Khashoggi's death and the mastermind of literally every bad news story we've had in the year 2018. This year has lasted like 12 years. Oh my God, I can't wait for it to be over. But when these two guys met, they kind of had a celebratory, hey buddy, what's going on moment. And our president has publicly defended both of them. And if that's the type of people that he pitches his tent in with, guys, I'm not so sure we want to be in that camp. But then there was this other kind of weird exchange that nobody really knew what was, was happening until one of the presidential aides of France actually came out and says, no, 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 I would... I would tell you what happened. President Emmanuel Macron. Macron, who, as uh, everybody knows, the guy that is, uh, you know, president of the nation that has Paris, him and 19 of the other, uh, I'm sorry, him and 18 of the other members of the G20 agreed to do something about climate change. Guess who was the one person that didn't do it? <sighs> yeah, it was Donald. But Macron was seen in a weird pull-aside on cameras and actually recorded in an exchange with Muhammad bin Salman. And the exchange itself was weird because what it did was it kind of maybe, possibly, said something about what Macron and MBS and Saudi Arabia's relationship is like. In this exchange that is called, I think it was by the Guardian's cameras, MBS 
who didn't notice the cameras at first, is seen in a kind of a quick, I guess you could say furious exchange with Macron. And Macron is saying things like, you should have listened to me. Why don't you listen? You never listen to me. And MBS, who then, after he's getting scolded by the president of France, notices the camera over his shoulder, smiles broadly, and says, I listen all the time. Yes, yes, don't worry. We are friends. We are friends. I listen. Macron then notices the camera, turns his back to them, and then starts in another low kind of fast exchange with the Saudi prince. Now, here's the thing. Nobody really kind of had any idea what was happening in that exchange. There were rumors going around about it. The rumors had to do with Macron basically telling MBS, are you effing stupid? You killed an American journalist. Didn't I tell you, don't do these type of things? That was the rumor. The truth is that's what it was. Because in an announcement from the, I think it's the Elise, it's, it's their version of the White House. For front, okay, I shouldn't say that. As you know, they kind of helped us start our nation and then we went back and started their nation. So we're kind of simpatico. So here's the thing. When it comes to Macron and MBS, this exchange they had with each other was suspicious at best. But in a statement from the president's office in France, it was, no, that's exactly what this exchange was over. Macron was very very upset about MBS not only killing Khashoggi and being instrumental in his death, but was also very, very upset about his escalations in Yemen. Despite him both promising, France and the United States, that the whole Yemen business would be wrapping down very soon. Remember in Donald Trump's defense of MBS in the aftermath of the Khashoggi murder? He had said that if you looked at Saudi Arabia in Yemen, they're not really the bad guys. They're just fighting because they're getting fought against. And if the war would go over, they would turn into humanitarian angels and all of that. Remember that? Yeah. That's not true. And Macron was calling MBS out on his BS. And that pull aside got caught on camera. But instead of denying it, instead of saying that it was something it wasn't, France is kind of really putting its shoulder into Saudi Arabia and saying, no, you will listen to us. And if you won't listen to us, we will publicly shame you. Now, the G20 was famous for shaming a lot of people. Let's let's go ahead and bring ourselves to one on her way out leader of Germany, Angel Merkel, who when I say shamed, I, I, I am saying that she avoided all shame because 
Well, it was a shame. Her plane broke down, and she had to catch a commercial flight. Uh, yeah, there was a real moment of panic as her plane started smoking and everything, made it a landing, and they got the prime minister on the ground. Well, this week, she is stepping away from her post and, for the first time in, like, I don't know, 18 years, is not going to be the leader of Germany. Is actually setting way for a new whole formation of a government in Germany under someone else. That happens Wednesday of this week. So she kind of missed all the shame of getting there because also sitting at her table was one of the only other female leaders of the free worlds, Theresa May. And if you know anything about Theresa May, this is Theresa May's Hell Week. Starting this week, back in the UK, she has got to go in front of the the parliament and start the very consequential, very minute, and nobody knows if it'll pass, Brexit vote, which will separate the UK from the common market, commonly called the European Union. Now, here's the thing about Theresa May. On the world stage, she's kind of a strange character. She was, before Prime Minister, a Remainer. In other words, she was the one that did not want to Brexit. She wanted to Bray, or Britain stay. They didn't really have a word for it, and I, I, I tried, people, I tried. Now, right now in the UK, she is actually getting criticized by the Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is famously a Brexit supporter. Now, as leader of the Labour Party, is a Brexit rejecter. So he's a rejectsit. So imagine if you're Theresa May sitting at the G20. You have a parliament that you don't know is going to cooperate. You actually platformed for something that didn't happen and then became the prime minister in charge of making that thing happen. According to all analysts in the world, when it comes to looking at the current deal, because it was so terribly thought out and executed by guys like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage of the UKIP party, once again... White rich men got us in this whole mess. Theresa May has what a bunch of analysts are saying is quite possibly the best deal possible for Britain under a Brexit strategy. And keep in mind, she's a person that actually campaigned to remain. And she's also the woman that was sitting alone with all these other world leaders. World leaders that included a guy right now under investigation. And let's just go ahead and say, in tomorrow's program, we are going to have to dive very deep into the latest findings that have come out because of Cohen's testimony and stuff. But Theresa May was left alone without her buddy, Angle Merkel, sitting at a table with Putin, Trump, Macron and more. And boy, do you want to talk about embarrassed? She was just like, hey, who here at the table is bankrupting their country this week? Yeah. So in a nutshell, the G20 was really nuts. 
Join us tomorrow, won't you? Until next time, love you, mean it. Gate in, bye.